0: This is your last chance. After this...
1: Or should we not follow the advice of the galactically stupid? That is a nice boulder. Ludicrous speed! Go! Ladies and gentlemen! Coming to you pre-recorded from two undersized apartments in New York City. It's Revenge of the Film Nerds. There, we're going to touch. I hate when people talk during the movie. With your hosts, Black Crystal.
0: I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way.
1: And Jack Manley.
0: What we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: A podcast for nerds by nerds. Perfection, yeah. Failure is not an option. And now, here are your hosts, Black Crystal and Jack Manly.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to an amazing episode of Revenge of the Film Nerds. I'm very, very excited today because we are going to be getting into an amazing film, and I cannot wait to chat with my amazing co-host, Yes, Jack. How are you doing today?
1: I got to say, you kind of buried the lead there, VK, because we have reached the end of season two.
0: Yes, indeed, you're right. I guess I just didn't want to admit that we're taking a short little pause to plan an amazing season three, but You're totally right, I did. (laughs) But
1: yes, no, we have gotten through 20 episodes now. Well, 19, we're working on 20 as we speak. (laughs) This has been a wonderful season. It has been full of some fantastic films and some great creative minds. And I think today's film really puts a nice little bow on a lot of things we've discussed.
0: I think you're on the nose with that. We have talked and run the gambit of everything, but... I feel like one thing that's really true here at the Film Nerds is that we like to pick films that are close to our heart and really have an impact to us, but also film culture as a whole. And I think that this film that we're talking about today is really on the money.
1: I think it's something that you clearly had a lot of sentimentality about, and I'm really glad that you were able to share it with me because I had never seen, believe it or not, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. How did I miss this film, BK? I love
0: Spielberg. I'm honestly shook. When you told that to me, when I suggested this, I was quite literally flabbergasted because you always have your mind and eyes on some of the best pieces out there. But of course, things slip past and I get it. Spielberg has done a lot of work and a lot of excellent films were coming out around this time. So I was thrilled to be able to bring this to the film nerds, especially it being a film that was super close to my mom and my family, and I grew up with it. And as a sci-fi head, I think that this film kind of takes the cake for me, if I'm being biased.
1: (laughs) Well, it's a really gripping story, and it's a pretty unique premise for, I guess, what we've seen in modern sci-fi, because it's about this guy who, after experiencing a close encounter with a UFO becomes obsessed with a vision that was imparted to him by the aliens. And this vision convinces him and others around the globe who share this vision to converge on the site of Devil's Tower in Wyoming, where the U.S. government is trying to set up first contact with these UFOs. So it's this very kind of uplifting story about beings from across the stars that want to bring people together. I think there's something very beautiful and unique about that, especially when most of our fiction about aliens is very antagonistic.
0: I'm glad that you bring that up. And I kind of want to bring up another sci-fi alien cosmic film that was super popular at the time. I mean, Star Wars is on and popping, right? So when you think of in space and you think of aliens, you're thinking of either horror or blasters. And Close Encounters is absolutely the furthest thing from that. And I think that's what makes me love it so much. It really like explores the fine line between reality and fiction, especially with the subject matter that it's based off of. I mean, a lot of people would claim that UFOs are fiction, while a huge other portion of people out there, probably me included, believe that it's reality and it's truth. And this film really toes the line with that and ultimately tells you that it is out there in such a splendid and kind of fantastical way. It's really, really well done.
1: In researching this film, there's something Richard Dreyfuss said about it that really has stuck with me throughout this process, and it was that the film had a noble purpose of showing people that not only are we not alone, but we have very little to fear from not being alone. And... In a world that was about to be taken over, at least culturally, in just two short years by the amalgamation of sci-fi and horror that is the masterpiece Alien, it's a really rare and beautiful statement about the stars and about reaching out to other beings as friends that I think capitalizes off of what the real history of looking to the stars for extraterrestrial life is really about. We haven't really looked at beings from the stars with fear. And I don't think that UFO culture has ever really been about that fear. It's about that hopefulness that we are not alone in the universe. And I think when you see the history of how the UFO culture has developed, you kind of see where this film is grounded.
0: I'm so glad you brought us there because one, understand this film, you gotta understand the history. But two, the idea of of wonder and like wondering what's out there, right? It's never about, oh, we want to be afraid, they're going to take us. It's this kind of enticingness and and excitement behind discovering something that might be greater than us, that is going to be further advanced than us, something else out there that is different. It is a very strong and hopeful, like you said, Jack, thread that this film kind of brings to the surface. And it all starts with a very real thing happens in the world. Like when I try to explain the idea of of UFO history to people, people just like don't want to listen to me, Jack. They're like, what are you talking about? Like that's not real. Like he just made that up for the movie. I'm like, no 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 no. This was a thing. (laughs) This is a very much a thing.
1: It's hard to explain sometimes as an American that there are like the good fun conspiracy theories like Bigfoot and aliens, and then there are the harmful conspiracy theories that we're not gonna give any air on this podcast. And UFOs have always been in that kind of conspiracy realm. So I understand why people are always skeptical about discussing them. But we've had accounts of unexplained, quote unquote, ships in the sky that date as far back as classical Rome. I know some people like to allege that it started with ancient Egyptians talking about it. But all of the papyruses that we found that proclaim ancient aliens from Egypt are pretty much fake. But that doesn't mean these accounts haven't shown up in history. I mean... From my own cultural background, in multiple Irish annals from the 8th century, you hear about ships in the sky. You hear these same words used in 16th century accounts in the Holy Roman Empire or Japanese and Korean historical records from the 17th through the 19th centuries. So UFOs, or at least objects in the sky, have existed in the consciousness for thousands of years.
0: Okay, I didn't know run that deep. I mean, like, I done heard of the show Ancient Aliens, but like, again, I didn't know if I really believed that. So you're kind of blowing my mind with this right now.
1: (laughs) I mean, there are all sorts of incidents in history that people are, you know, either willing to write off as weather phenomenon or that they still can't quite explain. I mean, a perfect example is in 1917, the miracle of Fatima in Portugal, Like The vision that was had by thousands of people on October 3rd of that year, some people think it was a religious experience, some people think it was a flying saucer, but it really was the United States that took the idea of the UFO culturally and blew it up into this huge idea and this huge culture of, are we alone out there? And it really has to do, honestly... With two things that predate 1947, which is the UFOs really hit the map. One, I'm sure you've heard of, BK, because you were a student of culture. And one you might not be aware of from history. But culturally, I am, of course, talking about the 1938 radio broadcast of War of the Worlds.
0: Oh, yes, indeed. Listen, my my grandpa be telling me how that really shook the world with its release and its execution there, so... I'm a little aware of that.
1: Just for those of us who are not as familiar with War of the Worlds, it was a radio play on October 30th, 1938, where Orson Welles directed this radio drama based on the H.G. Wells novel that was so convincing a drama that it caused a panic in several small towns across America that were utterly convinced that this broadcast was real. And it got to the point where the police tried to shut this down at the CBS network Because it was causing such pandemonium. So culturally, that's really where UFOs entered the minds of the American collective consciousness.
0: But I'm not so sure about the history thing. Did something else happen there?
1: In history, it would crystallize because of the experience of airmen in the UK and the US flying sorties in World War II, believe it or not. Because they would be pursued by balls of light that would come to be known as Foo fighters.
0: Wait a second. What does that mean? Not the band.
1: You didn't know that's where the band got its name, did you?
0: No! I'm learning so much today, Jack. <laughs> Honestly, this
1: is something that was noted not just by, you know, one or two air missions. This was several allied air crews during World War II reporting that they were being shadowed by flights of glowing orbs that could follow them at high speed and actually outmaneuver them on complex air maneuvers. And they were seen all over the world to the point where it sparked the U.S. government's early interest in UFOs. While they are looked at by many as meteorological phenomenon today, airmen from the war swear up and down that they were extraterrestrial objects, and among these airmen were future Alaska Senator Ted Stevens, who would maintain in the Senate, a lifelong belief in UFOs.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. I would have thought ain't nobody up there in government, anything, would vouch for it, like, publicly, let alone, like, claim that they were a part of an experience like that.
1: Well, really, this is before UFO mania really started in the 1950s, and this is before there really was a concerted effort of secrecy around things like Project Blue Book or Project Grudge. But really, UFO mania kicked off in the United States in the year 1947. And believe it or not, BK, this might come as a shock to modern believers in UFOs. This has nothing to do with the Roswell incident.
0: Wait, really? Are you serious? So what happened? Wait, yeah. First of all, we got to break it down for the listeners. So what happened with the incident? and, And what is this?
1: Well, actually, here's the thing. In the context of Close Encounters, there is no reason to discuss the Roswell incident because it did not become a landmark event for ufologists and conspiracy theorists until it reemerged in popular media a year after Close Encounters came out. So the whole thing with Roswell, the aliens crash landing in the desert, has no relevance on the incidents that Spielberg was referencing in this film. He was actually referencing a different event in 1947 known as the Kenneth Arnold sighting or the Mount Rainier sighting.
0: Wow. Okay, so for the movie heads and non-history heads, me, we're talking about all of those government scenes where our French uh, scientist is going out and seeing the global impact of our aliens being here. He's not referencing things that most people would have thought He was
1: really directing the film to reference incidents that were important to people in that day and age. You know, with modern context, we blow up Roswell into this huge thing and this huge landmark event. But the Mount Rainier sighting was much more important at the time. What happened there was on June 24th, 1947, as private pilot Kenneth Arnold was flying across Washington as he's passing south of Mount Rainier. He sees a flight of nine unidentified objects around the mountain and notes their odd flight patterns and their ability when they went away from the mountain to travel at three times the speed of any man-made aircraft at the time. And it wasn't just that he claimed this experience, it's that when he gave his accounts he gave them in a very lucid level-headed state that was deemed to be very reliable by investigators and when the U.S. military got involved, they discovered a number of corroborating witnesses in the area who saw similar phenomenon in the days around this sighting. And Arnold honestly thought it was a U.S. Army test at first, but became convinced they were of extraterrestrial origin after the Army could or would not provide an explanation based on their own technology. And so, for one, this is kind of where this idea of government restriction comes from, because... The army was not forthcoming on any information on this UFO sighting. But secondly, this is actually where we get the term flying saucer because Arnold described UFOs as like saucers skipping over the water. So this is where UFO mania comes from. It's not Roswell. It's from Kenneth Arnold.
0: Wow. I didn't even know about this incident. You're putting me on right now, Jack.
1: And it's, it's so potent, and it was really where UFO mania and 1950s B-Cinema gets its aesthetic. It's where we really get B-Cinema beginning to make science fiction its bread and butter and have this 1950s boom period. In large part, the Kenneth Arnold sighting and the copycats in years that would follow fueled this. And it's also in this period where we first get the idea of benign aliens in the 1951 film, The Day the Earth Stood Still which is honestly about science fiction that is aliens who are a reflection of humanity. And it broke new ground for that genre in a cerebral fashion. So UFO mania wasn't just about the sightings. It was quickly about our wonderment about who was out there, how we would interact with them, how our society would reflect upon them. And so that's where the UFO idea comes from. But
0: abductions... That comes a little later in
1: the timeline.
0: Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask here, and I love that you're bringing up a lot of references and other other film too, films that I've know of, but probably have not done or novels. Again, a lot of things were being written at this time. I feel like this is really, and again, correct me if I'm wrong because I'm a newbie in this stuff when we talk about history. But I feel like this is where sci-fi really started to get its legs, at least in the terms of it feeling realistic in a sense, that kind of believableness that the things had, because I feel like before that it was, I don't know, campy in a way, but I could be entirely wrong.
1: (laughs) It was definitely this era that kind of added that camp in because these sci-fi ideas and the sense of wonderment was out there, but you just couldn't justify a big budget for it yet. You didn't have anybody like a Steven Spielberg who was going to be able to have the clout to push that kind of big-budget science fiction across the line. But Spielberg, he was aware of the universe from an early age. And really, it was thanks to his dad showing him a meteor shower when he lived in New Jersey that he started looking at the skies as a little kid, to the point where it predated even his early interest in film. And you can see why he would have this interest as a kid living in 50s New Jersey – Because UFO mania was at the heart of his childhood culture and his childhood upbringing. And that was helped along in the early 60s when stories of abductions would come along like Betty and Barney Hill in 1961 in the first widely publicized story of an abduction when they claimed to have not only been taken up on a ship, but had a desire to draw what transpired in the immediate aftermath, had noted behavioral changes. You can see that it wasn't just popular culture and Steven Spielberg's love of movies that is influencing what we would see in Close Encounters. It was the real life reports of these UFOs and how these encounters would occur.
0: I'm so glad you bring up the real life situations as well as the media, because I know that I've watched a lot of different documentaries about this and Spielberg loved to chat about it, which is awesome. Because we go through a lot of films where we don't have the same amount of insight from the directors, let alone the writers. And I know that Spielberg really liked this one particular person who kind of helped him, like, coin the the name of what he was writing very early on. I was curious, do you know the name of that dude? And, like, did he come into relevance around this time, too? Or was it kind of after that?
1: Yeah, let it not be said that Spielberg only pays attention to films. He also has a broad interest in a lot of theoretical writing. And one of the writers that he gravitated towards was this guy, J. Allen Hynek who was an American astronomer who had worked on Project Sign, Project Grudge, and Project Blue Book for the U.S. government. And he was convinced, due to his involvement and the scientific method, that extraterrestrial life and UFOs were real. And he's also important in the history of UFOs anyway, because he's the guy who coined the Close Encounters system. So Spielberg had this grounding of 50s b cinema had this grounding of the familial connection to the stars but he also had the grounding of paying attention to these scientists
0: well so homie must have really had this idea early on but like this isn't spielberg's first work at all i know that he was doing things at a very very young age so i'm just curious all this like you know backstory and all this like crazy culture things going on growing up is going to fill your imagination. I already feel like I've went through this emotional journey Spielberg went through as a kid of thinking that maybe one day I'll be taken up into an alien ship and get exposed to a new world. <laughs> but I'm I'm curious to see how he kind of got his start into film to set him up for this because, again, like I said, Close Encounters was not his first shot at getting into the film world at all. Well, here's
1: the thing, though, BK, is it kind of was... Because when he was 18 years old, with some financing from his father, he directed a film called Firelight, which is about a group of scientists investigating lights in the sky and a series of abductions. And many of the themes and many of the scenes were lifted directly from Firelight in the writing of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So in a weird kind of way, this was his first film, even though it wasn't his first film.
0: Wow. See, I had heard about something he worked on, yeah, as a teenager, very young, but I didn't know it was, like, directly correlated to this. That is awesome. I want to know who I got to pay to get some eyes on this film.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's not easy to get a hold of. It was released for all of one day in theaters, and it grossed $601 on a $600 budget, so they made $1.
0: (laughs) I love that you know that, Jack. This is why you are the best. (laughs) I will say, though, really,
1: it is one of his early efforts that helps him get into college in Los Angeles in the late sixties. And in 1968, while he's attending school out in LA, he has a chance conversation with a universal executive who gives him a a pass to their studio backlot for three days. And those three days suddenly just become two months because nobody stopped him from going back on the lot the fourth day. So Spielberg has this love of film, has this love of the stars and he has now become the unofficial apprentice that summer on the universal lot and all these connections he builds by just being a guy who managed to sneak his way on there for longer than he should have. He sort of works his way into an opportunity to direct. And this is where his short film that we largely credit as his first film Amblin comes from.
0: Wow. I would love to be that guy to be a Spielberg on the back lot of a studio and just, be able to walk in on the fourth day. Like, so that that's me in an alt reality. I would kill for that because it's just instant access to exposure, experience, mentorship, everything you need if you want to kind of break out into that industry. So what an awesome setup and I'm kind of loving learning this anime story.
1: <laughs> I mean, it really is just kind of like, a, nobody's stopping me, as comedian Ron White would say. <laughs> but it it's funny because... Amblin is such a good film critically that it impresses a character from earlier in our season, Universal Vice President Sidney Sheinberg. Years before going to war with Terry Gilliam over the final cut of Brazil, he likes Spielberg enough to give him a seven-year deal directing at the studio and starts him off in work as a TV director.
0: TV? I mean, listen, I guess, you know, J.J. Abrams be doing it too, but like... I just don't, he doesn't stick me for a TV guy. His stories are just so grandiose. I feel like TV's so limiting, at least definitely at that time.
1: And it was limiting for him a little bit. He did have trouble breaking out in the early 70s in that environment, but he used the time well. He really instead refocused most of his effort on screenwriting series and short scripts for a time to build his reputation. And the strength of that writing work is what got him the chance to direct four TV films, the first of which would become Duel and show off his penchant for science fiction.
0: I've never heard of Duel, Jack. I'm I'm writing lists right now. I'm like, where can I see this? I might be a little uh, Spielberg crazy. You've done this to me.
1: I mean, if you didn't know that Steven Spielberg directed a science fiction movie about trucks, now you do.
0: Obsessed. Obsessed. Is that is that it, though? You said four TV films, so... The first one was all right, I guess I'm assuming successful now, made it through all of those films. I'm, I'm curious, like, what, what was the thing that switched him, what were, sent him kind of over that edge into the movie world?
1: Well, the studio finally, by 1972, was willing to take a chance on giving him a theatrical project on a very limited budget and gave him the right to direct the film Sugarland Express which is based on the true story of a couple on the run desperate to take their baby back from a foster couple. I've actually seen this, believe it or not, on the big screen, and it's, it's not what you would expect from Spielberg. It feels like a very small indie film, though it definitely has a lot of his sensibilities as a director on display. And despite its poor box office performance, it turned Spielberg into a critical darling to the point where... He was able to cut a deal with Columbia Pictures to do a science fiction film. So we're often running on a little project called Watch the Skies in late 73.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Watch the Skies is like, that was like a, the tagline for the movie Close Encounters at some point. So he out the gate was like, I'm going to make my childhood movie a reality. I think I would if I was given the budget. I'd try to do that right away.
1: Oh, he wanted to do it right away, but in terms of getting the budget, Columbia was only really able to come up with $2.5 million out of the gate, and he thought that that was far too little to do a film that was going to rely on state-of-the-art technology, and he did not want to do a B-film about UFOs. So he kind of shifted his focus. He thought about doing a smaller film, thought about doing a documentary on people who believe in UFOs, and in service of making a smaller film, he came up with a plot centered around Project Blue Book, ...that his friend and collaborator, producer Gloria Katz, thought was the worst idea she had ever heard. And so Spielberg was starting to go off the rails a little early here in the process... ...and knew that he needed to fix his script. So he drafts in screenwriter Paul Schrader, who had pinned Taxi Driver at this point in time. And with Schrader writing, he was ready to go and ready to focus in on this project... ...and really make it into his vision... But at this point, he gets a little call from producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown because they thought he was the right guy to do a little project called Jaws.
0: Just a little project. Just a little project.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just just the first blockbuster in film history that would establish Spielberg as a powerhouse. Just, just, just that little tiny project.
0: I understand why this teeny, teeny project would put a crazy sci-fi endeavor on hold. I mean, Jaws was definitely not... Easy to make if I'm being generous in that answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, to the point where Spielberg had to put everything on Watch the Skies on hold until the late stages of filming Jaws. And on one hand, Jaws was a great boon despite its difficulty because it increased the amount of creative control that Spielberg was allowed to negotiate on this film, including the right to make the film any way that he wanted. But on the negative, it also put him under tremendous pressure to follow up Jaws with another similarly big film. And he wasn't thinking big here. He was thinking small. And it did not help that he was about to enter script hell. Because when Paul Schrader hands him a brand new draft of an idea called Kingdom Come, Spielberg thought it was one of the most embarrassing screenplays ever professionally turned in to a major film studio or director.
0: What was so embarrassing about it?
1: Well, it had really reduced to the premise. It was about an astronomer hired by the government to scrutinize UFO sightings, who then has their own encounter and works with the government to establish contact. There, There is no conflict to it. There is no real premise to it other than the search for UFOs. There's nothing bigger about it. And Spielberg didn't have a lot to work with. It became this massive creative rift between director and writer to the point where they brought in John Hill who was himself dealing with his own scripting hell on his draft of his film Quigley Down Under that would eventually get made in 1990 and he rewrites with Schrader but Spielberg hated their draft too because he thought they wanted to make it into like a James Bond adventure as a solution to nothing happening in Schrader's draft.
0: Jeez, well, from what I'm hearing about these drafts, they really took the heart and soul out of the vision I feel like Spielberg had. Like, on the first draft, it's, oh, well, let's go with the astronomer angle, and, okay, well, Blue Book, so they're, like, trying to poke holes in the UFO stuff, so let's just have him character-driven, come to realize that he's wrong by the obvious encounter, and then they make content. Again, What I just... I feel like it's like a, a picture. You could have made an art installation with that. And then the second film there is like, all right, okay, let's make it an action adventure. What are you, like, what are you trying to do here? This is, this is not a story where people are going to be, I don't know, stealing the spaceship from the alien. Like, I can't imagine this movie as a James Bond adventure. Like, I'm, I'm, my brain can't wrap around it.
1: I think Spielberg realized that he wasn't getting something critical across here, which is that this wasn't supposed to be about big adventure. It wasn't supposed to be about making a protagonist who is larger than life. You needed it to be a relatable film. You needed it to evoke the same wonder that he had had watching a meteor shower with his dad all those years ago. So he took two steps really quickly. Firstly, firstly, he hired Jay Allen Hynek as a consultant on the project. And secondly, he decided he was not going to work with Schrader or John Hill anymore and he was going to pin his own draft of the script. And his inspiration, BK, will melt your Disney love and heart because the entire time he was writing, he was thinking about the song When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio.
0: Oh, there's no difference who you are when- Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, your dreams do come true. You're going to meet an alien and they're not going to kill you. I get it now. I get it, Jack.
1: He really did want to have that sense of childlike wonder that undergirds the film. And he was further emboldened because when he asked, along with Hynek, the U.S. Air Force and NASA to aid the project, not only did they refuse Spielberg, they wrote a 20-page letter to Spielberg telling him that releasing the film was dangerous. And that was kind of how he knew that there must be something happening. But Spielberg wasn't the only guy who had that sense because he's working on all of this and going through this script hell while he's finishing up Jaws. So who does he turn to for brainstorming, for advice, for counsel in this hour, but Richard Dreyfus?
0: I'm kind of embarrassed it's taking me right now to realize that's the same dude. I'm a little embarrassed, Jack.
1: <laughs> well, you are not the only one to not realize that because Spielberg, at the start of this, did not see Richard Dreyfuss as Roy Neary. He was way too focused on him in that Jaws role. And despite the fact that Dreyfuss is giving him all of this great brainstorming and helping him flesh out these ideas and literally imploring Spielberg for the role, Spielberg really wanted Steve McQueen to the point where he sits down with McQueen after he gives him the script and McQueen gives him the answer that he can't play the character. And I think BK is one of the most poignant refusals an actor has ever given because McQueen tells him, I've decided I can't play this character because I can't cry on film. I've never been able to do it. And you need the crying when he boards the ship, the crying broke my heart. Steve McQueen turning down spielberg the way that only an artist who understands that role could
0: wow that's beautiful it's beautiful there has to be something so personal to you at that at that moment and the and the tears need to happen to see a grown man cry especially with all of the terrible terrible stereotypes of that it it just it has a weight to it to see to see that happen in that moment there. I think he's right. I think it would have not hit the same. So I'm kind of glad he passed up. I'm not going to lie.
1: And also, McQueen is just, it's hard not to see him as this very adult, aloof badass. That just is who Steve McQueen is on film. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, like McQueen surmised, meant that he was not right for the role. So Spielberg goes on this long search of a who's who of Hollywood at the time. He looks at Dustin Hoffman, Pacino, Hackman gets turned down by all these guys all while Dreyfus is incessantly lobbying him for the role and believing in himself and having that confidence to believe he's that everyman and finally he wins him over by telling Spielberg something that he knew all along what you need for this role is a child and Spielberg realized that Dreyfus could play this role like a child with that sense of wonder and innocence
0: Gosh, this is part of my favorite things. This is like BTS outside of all of the work that goes into it. It's really hearing these stories, especially coming from this, the casting angle and focusing in on what we kind of talked about at the top of the pod, which is the idea of of wonder and, and that kind of childlike wonder and that innocence really propelling not only a lot of the characters here, including an actual child and not to mention the aliens were kind of children, but... (laughs) <laughs> really, the, uh, the message and that sense of wonder that you get from this type of an experience or of believing that there's something more out there. I could not think of someone else better for that role of the everyman. I think it was on the money, and I'm so grateful that that casting happened.
1: And it's a situation where I think Dreyfus got it from a very early point in time that there was something special going on with this film. And I think as actors came on to it, you would see in the efforts that they went to to make their roles believable and universal, that they got it too. A perfect example is Terry Garr playing Ronnie Neary. He got cast in it incidentally because Spielberg saw her in a coffee commercial at the time and loved her look, and then later was aware of her afterwards for young Frankenstein in the conversation where her performances in those films would floor him. But she, once she got this role and read this script and understood what she needed to bring to it, she played the role as a nod to girlfriends of hers who were married and stuck living through their husbands. She played up that dependency. She went method almost in an early example of it by getting into the role in Alabama where this film was shot by going out to local stores in the area and shopping like Ronnie Neary, like really kneeling shop assistants, asking those incessant, aggressively annoying questions. Francois Truffaut, when he got involved as Lacombe, he absolutely, within 48 hours, was willing to be on the project because he saw what this film wanted to bring in terms of childlike wonder. And for such a powerful director of the French New Wave, He tells Spielberg flatly, I'm here to be an actor. You are the director. I am here to do what you need me to do for this film. And it was just something where people had this idea in their head that it was something bigger afoot.
0: I mean, when you see this film, I think you're gravitated immediately towards, I don't know, not only the passion when we hear Spielberg's story, but like the message that the film is trying to tell. It really kind of captivates you, and especially... If we're talking the script is as good as it can be at this point when these actors are being brought on, I think it was kind of go time. And anyone who was a creative that really resonated with what this film was about to do, I think kind of brought them there, much like how it brought them to the mountain in the film.
1: (laughs) I think that's a good analogy. And it really was at the point where to get the role of David Laughlin, the interpreter, Bob Balaban just outright lied to Spielberg, producer Melinda Phillips, and Dreyfus when they said they were interested in him playing the role because he paired well visually with Francois Truffaut. They needed somebody who could speak French and do interpretations because Truffaut was not a great English speaker. His English was very broken. He mainly spoke French as his natural language. So Balaban just tells him, oh yeah, I I can speak French. And when they ask him to say a little more French, he tells them in French that he doesn't speak French, but because nobody else at that casting spoke French, he gets the role.
0: Are you kidding me? That's insane. Also, how does that not bode well for a production? I'm rolling right now in my chair, Jack.
1: I love that story because I love that Balaban just had to be involved with this project to that degree. But I think the most serendipitous casting of all, honestly, is what happened with Melinda Dillon, Gillian Guiler in the film. Because they're, on the Thursday before they're about to start shooting, they've got 96 hours to go with Jillian's first shots, and there's no Jillian. What?
0: Wait, that's like, that's week of. That's days before.
1: Yep, it's literally like two work days until you need an actress and you don't have an actress. But Spielberg got a lifeline from his friend, director Hal Ashby, who sent him two reels of his rough cut for the film Bound for Glory, which starred Melinda Dillon and hyped up her abilities as an actor. And Spielberg didn't cast her because he was desperate, he cast her because he was blown away by her work. He's even said that they would have worked all weekend to redo the schedule and rework the script if Melinda Dillon hadn't been right for the role. And for her part, Dillon felt that attraction to this film because when she flipped open the script and read the end of the film where she sees her character... Taking photos of the aliens and enjoying the experience, it attracted her to it. And she thought that if she was attracted to anything she read, that it was the right film. So when you got the principles of this cast together, it really was a something is in the water kind of film.
0: I don't think it stops with the principles, if I'm being honest, Jack, because when it comes to actualizing this vision and making it something visual and tangible, I may say, or dare say, on screen, I think everyone was fully invested in creating and making something come to life, something that has never been seen before.
1: Just for a start, they did more camera tests on this project than I think is medically advisable, at least from a mental health perspective. But they had to go through this process because they wanted it to look as realistic as possible. And to do so, Spielberg drafts in Douglas Trumbull and Colin Cantwell from 2001 A Space Odyssey, and Cantwell in particular does something pretty incredible. He performs for Close Encounters the first CGI test in film history.
0: Wow, with this back? I didn't know it was like that, Jack.
1: He did a test where he had three ships flying over a football stadium, and it was completely computer animated. Now, granted, it didn't work. (laughs) I mean, we learned this from the Total Recall episode way back at the beginning of the season. These effects were still 13, 14 years from being actualized on film, but they gave it a shot, and they broke that ground, and they realized once that wasn't going to work, they were going to have to rely on Old Reliable and do extensive modeling on this project, But they found a pretty clever way, I think, around a lot of the limitations modeling puts on the camera.
0: Oh, they were doing actually groundbreaking modeling stuff here, Jack, specifically with setting up the miniatures a little differently than normally, like kind of forced prospecting how they were set up so that when they do do the tricks that they are doing with the cameras and kind of creating that technology to record and really get those shots with the miniatures, they opened the doors for what could be possible with modeling and and practical effects, if I'm being honest.
1: I mean, the thing that blows my mind, apart from the modeling, is Douglas Trumbull introducing Spielberg to this process called motion control, which I honestly don't understand how this works without a supercomputer or at least modern technology. But they had the ability in in the 70s to record camera movements like pans, dollies, and zooms on a cassette using digital signals, input those movements into a computer and have them repeated back when shooting those miniatures. And it takes that modeling to a new level because not only are these models so intricate that they've been placed in the friggin' Smithsonian, but they're not in static shots, which is like the biggest drawback of the old school sci-fi cinema. All these static shots with these clearly fake models going across them. Instead, you get this really very mature-looking modeling where all of the flaws and all of the obvious points where you can see that it's not a real spaceship are metered out by this very mature, very fluid camera movement. And it's impressive to me that they could do this at the time. It's groundbreaking. And it's groundbreaking, furthermore, that the effects look as good as they do.
0: Oh, 100%. And we're talking effects that range from Matte paintings for live action scenes and doing some crazy film stuff. Like I have to remind our listeners, like this is film, y'all. Like physical, physical film that they have to work with. And they're using things to project on them, having artists making amazing designs and works that are basis for All of the miniatures that were made. I mean, even the clouds, Jack, had to be workshopped because Spielberg needed them just right. It's such a funny story when you start to realize that really all of the things that we see visually, all of these crazy fantastical elements are genuinely pure Spielberg imagination. And him trying to explain this to all of the amazing hands that created these things is fascinating
1: and you mentioned that they had to do all of this on physical film i think this is where again douglas trumbull really came in clutch for spielberg as a collaborator because one thing that happens when you're compositing vfx shots into one final print is that when you go through that compositing process you lose overall visual quality so They had this big quagmire of we have all these huge effects that we want to make sure look good on the film, but when we composite, we're probably going to lose a lot of that in the 35mm anamorphic format that the film is actually being shot on. 35 anamorphic was the film stock. So what they did is all of the visual effects were shot and composited on 65 millimeter prints, which were about three times the size of 35mm prints. And then they were anamorphically downsized in one process, to match the size of the regular film stock that Spielberg was using. And so when they lost quality, they were losing quality relative to an entire different size of film. So the reason the effects look as crisp as they do is because Douglas Trumbull guided Spielberg to the right film stock. I know that's a really anal detail, but I just think it goes to show what you said off top, that it wasn't just the actors who put their all into this film. Everybody was on point.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, the the extensive storyboarding of the ship alone, I feel like it's such a great testament to how important the vision being actualized and conceptualized to the technicality of what you just said. To make sure that all of the hard work that was put in is also seen by the audiences at that right quality and at the best quality that can offer. Spielberg was not gonna let this die, especially with the budget that he had. It was at the point now where we're gonna go bigger, or go home. We're gonna make effects that probably have never been done before. And we're gonna find a way to convey this feeling and this story that he's been trying to tell since he was, what, 18?
1: <laughs> well, let me just say this though, BK. You said that Spielberg had the budget and was gonna do the most. And, um... I hate to contradict you there, but Spielberg's overrun on this film was so bad in terms of budgets that it wasn't just that it put the film in jeopardy. The little fly in the ointment behind the scenes here is that all of this actually put Columbia Pictures in severe financial difficulty while they were already struggling as a studio because the budget went from a proposed 2.7 million to 19.4 million.
0: Jeez. Okay. So, all right, I was wrong. Thank you for correcting me. 100% hands down. But the funniest part I have to add is I was watching Spielberg talk about this in retrospect, and he said he had, apparently he had no idea, quote unquote, what Colombia was dealing with and their bankruptcy which is why he quote didn't have the money so the way you're positioning it now it sounds like he might have been A very large part of that problem, and he wasn't aware at the time.
1: I mean, I got to give Spielberg credit as a director because he has always been uncompromising in his vision and incisive in his research and in his realization of that. I mean, look at finding the way to build the final set for this film as a perfect example. Spielberg knew that he couldn't build this set outside because it was so large that weather could potentially ruin the finale. So he wanted to find a large indoor space, larger than any soundstage that existed. And the only place he found in the world that was big enough to fit the set that didn't have central dividing pillars was a disused USAF air hangar in Mobile, Alabama. So you know what? We're going to move most of the production to Mobile, Alabama and shoot most of the film there due to the proximity. And we're going to build the full first contact set and we're going to build a section of Devil's Tower topography to match the set. And you have all these big ideas. Like, no wonder this film ballooned in its cost. And it got to the point where Columbia exec John Veach said of the film, if we knew it was going to cost that much, we wouldn't have greenlit it because we did not have the money. And it was so desperate that Columbia had to sell stakes in the film to Time Incorporated, EMI, and German tax shelters to make up for a $7 million shortfall that the company was going to experience.
0: The numbers are starting to sound really bad. The more you keep saying them, the more the more terrible it sounds.
1: Spielberg is a guy who has constant ideas, and a lot of the time, that is the best thing in the world because he has his reputation as a director for a reason, because he has grandiose ideas and puts them and actualizes them on film in a way that very few directors can But... That also extends your production schedule. Like, Vilmos Zygmunt, the DP on this film, put it really well when he said that Spielberg would watch movies every night to get ideas, which in turn extended the production schedule because he was continually adding new scenes to be filmed.
0: I guess, I don't know, the success of Jaws, they're really leaning into him. They're like, look, man, this movie's got to make... Not double, not triple, but quadruple, bro. I'm going to need you to give me four more movies. <laughs> like. That's
1: just how Spielberg has always operated, is he wants to get every large, grand idea he can onto film. He wants to film, and I, I kind of respect this, he films as much as he feels he can get away with. And he's doing that not from a content perspective, but from the perspective of what he can get the studio to allow him to put on film because he's such a mature director in what he understands his vision to be that he can kind of, you know, mess with the margins a little bit.
0: <laughs> he can kind of do whatever he wants and get away with murder. It's fine. We'll, we'll let him. It's Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But but for real, I love what you said there, that he's a, he's a mature director in that sense. And again, it's mature. is so crazy for me to say when we're talking about some of his earlier grand works i don't know but he really did kind of i say commit <laughs> like full commit no no regrets i say it that way because i have to but in all honesty really you couldn't look at the numbers at that point and when you are such a creative like he is and you are still getting insight to what scenes you want to add and how you want to kind of tweak things here and there you're lost in the sauce at that point i'm quite literally afraid of this man in the cutting room floor the more i learn about him like i'm i'm honestly terrified by him because i know how passionate he is about all of the all of the footage that he's getting and like you said he's trying to get as much as he can get well what happens when you get a lot because i i know for a fact that the final scenes of this film so much was shot, and I know there are three different cuts of this film. So you you gotta you gotta bring me in there. How did how did we get there? How was post-production? Is Spielberg a-, a hound? Should I be afraid? Well,
1: we'll get to those three cuts in a little bit. That actually comes a lot later than the release of this film, believe it or not. But what happened is that we've kind of hit around this point incidentally in talking about this film. But one of the reasons I think that Spielberg was able to come across as such a mature and polished director from an early point in his career is because of the creatives that he was working and collaborating with. And nowhere is this more true than when he got into the editing room on this film and started working with editor Michael Kahn and built a relationship with him as an editor that has continued on every film since they worked on Close Encounters together. And I think part of that is because they did navigate those thousands of feet of film to get things right. To this day, Spielberg attests that the last 25 minutes of this film were the hardest thing he's ever had to cut. And Spielberg and Khan were incisive in their process of going through everything they could. To the point that when they were dissatisfied with the first cut they enlisted decorated DPs Laszlo Kovacs and Douglas Slocum to get several pickups so they could add more content and more possibilities to what they were editing. And I think that speaks to what Spielberg is probably like in the editing room, is that he wants to get his film right, but he wants to extend himself every possibility of getting everything right. He wants Multiple options to figure out what is going to feel right in his heart. And Michael Kahn's process really enables him in that pursuit.
0: I love that story there and learning that relationship between director and, you said editor is uh, Michael Kahn? Correct. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure there wasn't another technical title because we want to give everybody they flowers. Spielberg and Kahn's relationship is so great. And to hear about the last 25 minutes being the hardest to cut between the two of them. We have to go in depth about the final 25 minutes. I mean, that is the encounter. In multiple stories where Spielberg has talked about the writing process and the vision of the story is really building up to this moment. And he said time and time again that the encounter is kind of where the inception of the idea came from. And he kind of wrote everything backwards. So when we get to those last 25 minutes... We are getting to, like, the purest form of the idea and inspiration that Spielberg had. And that scene is everything for me. There are some great scenes throughout the film. Do not get me wrong. And all of them, I feel, just serve as filler to bolster this final scene where we do finally get to see the UFOs. We get to see this musical ballad of communication. It's just impeccable, Jack. I could go on and on and on. So you're going to have to find a way to limit me here.
1: Well, I will say, I think those final 25 minutes, for one, I think they're deeply significant because it's where this movie's very, I think, poignant and very resonant themes all really come to a head. And you do have very much in a nice little bow, all of the thoughts that the film raises tied together. And I think that the reason I think the scene can be so hopeful is because of the way that they term language and communication in this film as being beyond words and being understood as something that extends beyond just one method of communication. And I think that's one of the reasons why it comes across so strong as a piece of cinema, this ending of this film. You're not you know, worried about a big crescendo up to, you know, something that is visually action-packed, you hope this film is going to culminate in a point of understanding between these two beings that are making first contact, between these beings that are repeating these tones back to each other and trying to say hello to one another. You have a real feeling of hope that is instilled with you, and I think that it gets to very strongly the central point of why we even communicate as species in the first place. We don't just communicate because we have a need to make those noises or make those particular sounds or utterances. We communicate because we are desperate to be understood. And in this film, Spielberg literally makes that search for being understood
0: universal Universal is the perfect word. I think it's super intentional by Spielberg, too, to really make sure that we see a lot of the globe, a lot of kind of criticism about the film is that there's this weird subplot of government conspiracy. And I think, rightfully here, the film nerds, it's not a weird subplot. It's quite literally integral to the entirety of the film. And it brings us to that, that it's a global phenomenon for UFO sightings and things of that nature, but also a global, no boundaries type of human experience to want to be understood, to want to connect to others. And when you kind of used all of your connections to the most in modern technology, the first instinct is to look upward and outward. And I really feel like that's a lot of the themes here when we talk about it. The The thing that gravitates me to the, the most is the angle of humankind progress. I mean, the scientists and the government angle or subplot, if you will, is all about the pursuit of knowledge. The government here in this story, unlike a lot of other sci-fi films, is not trying to uh, make a weapon of mass destruction or try to capture this alien or try to kill it or, or attack it in any way. They're merely trying to communicate with it through various waves, and vice versa. It's not a one-way street. Not only are humans trying to communicate outward and try to bring themselves to another level of advancement with this communication, but the aliens or the others are trying to communicate back. So when they kind of bring that language of of numbers as coordinates and music, all universal languages I think the story really hits home immediately and blows you away when you get to the final five-tone scene, if you will. I mean, I'm essentially listening to an orchestra talk to each other, but I'm listening to what aliens and humans communicate. It's fascinating, and that scene, it never leaves me. Like, when I think of this film, I think of that moment, Jack.
1: It's a very hopeful view of the universe, I think. It is... A belief in humanity that we will seek out the stars rather than the comfort of the cave. And I think that is why it's resonant from that perspective of human progress, because it is not just people seeking progress because they are, you know, far from it. They're not power mad. They are curious. They simply want to know an answer to a question that they have. And it's almost, it's very innocent in the way that it poses our first introduction to another species that is traveling the stars. It's this belief that we're so curious and so in need of communication as a species that we would be willing to believe the best in any race that would contact us, that we would not want to react with open hostility, despite the fact that our own history is marked with meeting new peoples and reacting to them with hostility. And it's almost contrarian in a lot of ways to human nature. It's almost enlightenment, right? It's this idea that Spielberg has put on the screen that we can overcome our differences. We can overcome our fears, Because if we believe in our childlike innocence, if we believe in wonderment, we're not going to want to hurt anybody. We're going to want to talk to them. We're going to want to relate to them. We want to bond with them and love them. And I think that's a really, really powerful statement that you just don't really get in much sci-fi anymore.
0: No, at all. I think it's beautiful. It's quite literally poetic and... And in another level, when we talk about this idea of childlike wonder or or innocence there, there really is this sense of kind of like spirituality in a way, non-religious, right? But you said it there, a bond, a connection, and there's something very spiritual about that. And what more spiritual of an experience is seeing something of the unknown, something truly unknown, that which is extraterrestrial, a being that is absolutely nothing, like yourself you're going to get the purest form i feel here at least in this film of human interaction and it is something so beautiful so connecting it to it when you watch this and you experience it as the characters are all kind of you know coping and dealing with their own reception of what has gone on but i feel like the message is clear and and like you said jack there is a very a uh, very I don't want to say humble's the wrong word, but it's a very like pure, I feel like I say that too much, but a very pure, beautiful thing that I feel this film brings to at the end. And to again, to know that Spielberg kind of contrived the ending first makes me feel like everything about this film has those themes and those ideas kind of at the root of the story.
1: And I think that the spirituality focus that you mentioned is a really important point as well. Because, honestly, a lot of belief in aliens and a belief in UFOs for much of history is really on the level of a leap of faith for most people. At one view, it's something that seems silly. We have no direct evidence of it. We have plenty of reasons to be skeptical about them. But by the same token, if you are somebody who believes in UFOs, Or if you were somebody who, I guess I would be in this camp, who believes that there are so many trillions of stars in the universe that it is mathematically impossible that we are alone. It's a benign kind of faith. It's a kind of thing that you can believe in because it makes you hopeful. Because at some level, it's fun to believe that we're not alone in the universe. The alternative is really depressing, that we're the only sentient life that exists anywhere in the stars. I'd hate to live in a universe like that.
0: You're talking to me, Jack. I I, I find it very hard to believe that uh, this beautiful accidental existence, that which is us, is the only beautiful accidental <laughs> existence out there in the infinite possibilities of the cosmos. I'm, I'm with you right there, 100%.
1: And I think that we're not alone in that feeling as well. And I think that people really do embrace that innocence because when this film comes out it's been a huge overrun for columbia they're really relying on this film at this point to save the studio and it manages to gross 288 million worldwide on initial release and become the company's most successful film to that point in time oh i might
0: i might know something that you didn't write Oh, so did you know when they initially released it? They only released it in two theaters in all of the United States and they sold out three times, four times before the national release. So Spielberg often talks about how he feels like he probably would have done even better if they didn't limit it to those theaters on release. I think one was in New York and one was somewhere else, maybe California. So. Very interesting to see how well it did after being released to the public, to people before that, and still making that much money afterwards.
1: Columbia got hesitant because they didn't have a big shark to pin the film on. Yep,
0: yep. (laughs) You already know, Jack. But I'm good to hear it did well. This isn't just some cult film that my family made me watch because they made me watch a lot of those. So I'm glad to know this was a hit when it came out at the time.
1: And critically, it was received very favorably It was noted, for one, for being the film that kind of established this mood that we've seen since this point of Spielberg's real hopeful, dreamlike vision of the world that we kind of alluded to, talking about having this very hopeful view of human progress. But it was also noted by both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael as they kind of called it a kid's picture in the best sense. They felt like they related to that aspect of childlike innocence that they had sensed in the film. And perhaps it's why this was one of the most nominated films at the Academy Awards that year. It got eight nominations, including a second nomination for Best Film Score for John Williams, who, uh, this might be controversial, but kind of feel like he should have won for Close Encounters instead of the win he did get for Star Wars.
0: Listen, I'm biased. I think the sound is so important here, especially the music in this film. Without it, I feel like the tension and the ambiance wouldn't have been the same. And that's not to discredit Star Wars, but... Oh, God, no. Let's be real here. Yeah, there's definitely uh, some sort of delicate hand, I think, that was needed. And a, a little bit more artistry, I think, in this. So to hear that it didn't win is wild to me.
1: I don't want to gloss over the effort that John Williams went to to establish what he had to for this. Because We've talked about the five tones at length in this podcast. And that was a collaborative effort between him and Spielberg. He tasked Williams with finding the right five-note phrase. Williams wanted more, but Spielberg didn't want it to sound like a melody. He thought five notes would sound like a hello. And Williams, he didn't do this for Star Wars, but he did this for Close Encounters. He tried over 300 combinations and enlisted a mathematician friend to find out how many five-note combinations there were and came back with an answer of over 100,000. So... He went to lengths to make sure that he gave Spielberg the right combination for this communication that is so integral on
0: film. But I do need to ask, at what, at what point, though, was like Spielberg like, yo, give me some more money so we can get back into the studio, though? Because we did say we'd get to those cuts. So I'm assuming after all the nominations or whatever, Columbia was like, here you go, take it.
1: So despite having this great collaboration and this great success with the film Spielberg was still dissatisfied with it he absolutely wanted to get back and do something more with the film than he had because he felt like the studio had really rushed him to release the cut so in 1979 he convinces Columbia to give him 1.5 million to recut the film wherein he adds seven minutes and cuts 10 minutes of the film now he did in part get what he wanted here. He also had to make a controversial decision, which is that he was told by Columbia that he had to include shots in the mothership. And while it did bump the gross above 300 million, Spielberg hated the fact that he had to share the mothership.
0: As do I. I echo exactly Spielberg's thoughts. I think it ruins the story. This is why when we did our watch party for it, I refused to show this cut of the film because I think all of the conversation that we just spent talking about, the idea of wonder, the spirituality in the unknown, like, the film shouldn't show me that. I need to walk away from the movie thinking about that for the next six hours, okay? The whole film has been spent watching
1: Roy Neary take leaps of faith because, as he says, this means something. He has ruined his family life. His wife and his kids have left. He is without work, deeply unemployed and with no direction. But he takes this leap of faith because there's something greater. I don't want to see the result of that leap of faith. I want the circle to close by knowing that Roy has taken that leap of faith. And Spielberg felt the same way to the point where he sat on this for 19 years and in 1998, finally goes back and does a director's cut where he includes bits and pieces of the first two cuts. But he acts as the mothership entirely.
0: I mean, you do what you gotta do. Especially if this film is your your love child, which is what I'm finding out. I had no idea how intimate this film was to Spielberg. Finding out that this is his pride and joy in a sense you bet your bottom dollar I'll come back after I drop how many movies and have a big budget to make the right cut of my film that I like. And I'll re-release it and get a bunch of more money too and royalties. Watch.
1: (laughs) It's really interesting to see because I remember at the time he was recutting this as a little kid, not having seen it, that there was a lot of controversy circling around these directors revisiting old projects. But I think in Spielberg's defense here, because we did watch the director's cut, because it is the longest version of the film, and that's the one we wanted to see for this. I think he does himself a service because, like you said, this is his baby, and he wanted it to reflect that wholesome experience of who he was as a kid, that experience that we relate to when we all look up at the stars for the first time, and we wonder, is there something more to this universe? It's a film that makes you really think about when you first started thinking as a human being about yourself as something other than the center of the universe. And I think that that is a very liberating thing about this film. Again, no hate for Alien when it came out two years later and blended sci-fi and horror and completely expanded the popularity of the science fiction genre. But It seems like we've been ending this season talking about types of films that we've lost or that we're losing with the historical epic and with the teen drama. And I think that hopeful science fiction like this, something that isn't dystopic and hellish in its premise, is something that we sorely miss. And it's profound and it's surprising upon first viewing. It is a movie that will literally move you to tears when you first watch it and i'm guessing probably after you've seen it a hundred times because it does achieve wonder and it's a rare film that can move you to tears through joy
0: you don't get that quite often in the world you can only think of one other movie in modern film that has done that since and that is something we'll have to include in our next season because uh It's getting too many nominations this year, everything, everywhere, all at once. And you haven't seen it, Jack.
1: I'll have seen it in the next 30 days because I'm watching every Oscar nom. Every Oscar nom? Every Oscar nom. Dun,
0: dun, dun. Well then, good. But again, I bring that up to say that since then, that's the only film that I can even remotely compare it to in the scale and the impact that it does. And again, that kind of positive notion, like we're in a world of doom and gloom and grim. Like, I look outside, it's looking pretty dark outside, not just because it's winter, but because it is. It's pretty savage out there, and it never not is. So sometimes with my films, I love being real, I love being nitty-gritty, but there's something about doing that as well as kind of adding that hopeful angle, adding a positive or or joyous take on something. We don't see that a lot in this day and age, and I, I think you're right, Jack. I think we are in an era You're going to need a resurgence. I feel it in my bones. It's coming. It's coming real soon, Jack. You'll get where
1: I'm going with this because now I've actually shown this film to you, but it puts me in mind of, that hopefulness does at least, of the Cameron Crowe film Vanilla Sky. Not because Vanilla Sky is nearly as upbeat or positive a film. It's very cerebral and dark compared to this, obviously. But both of those films end on that same idea of hopefulness and the idea that human capability resides on the way that we dictate ourselves in our present and that we have this ability to reconnect to our deeper emotions and to the way that they matter to us if we only stop and look at the world around us and look at our impact on it. And Close Encounters, it's a film that I missed for far too long and it's one that I'm extremely glad has now been seen.
0: Oh yay! I'm so hyped! I was a little nervous because, like, you know, you're not like a big blockbuster guy. Like, you like the hype to die, die down. Uh,
1: uh, uh, ex- excuse you. I'm just saying. Uh, I'm a, uh, I like my pretentious films, but I am happy to put on action movies.
0: Okay, you're right. You're right. You got
1: she. She got me. She got me offended in the last episode I'm of the season. Sorry, no, <laughs> I didn't
0: mean it that way. No, you're right. You're right. You have very, very a uh, well eclectic taste, but. You know, when it becomes like a film that's out there and does super, super well, you like the hype to die down. You like to to have time away from it. That is true. You like to be able to let it be its thing, live there, and you digest it on your own terms. So I I bring that up to say that this is a a film of that nature. And it's a film a lot of people could have missed when it came out. One, because it's a a little ancient. I forgot how old it was. (laughs) But not compared to some of the films you cover here on the podcast that are still phenomenal. But it is something that came out, and if you weren't about the buzz, and if it wasn't interesting you, you might have strayed away from it, or it might have been lost in a a pocket. So I'm so glad that you had a great experience with it, and I'm honored to be able to kind of share this film with you and with everyone listening, because it is something that's super close to me, and I feel like we talked about it a lot, about what draws me to it and a lot of the stories and its hopeful nature and the, the kind of spiritual connection you have with it. As someone who is very spiritual herself and is a huge, avid fan of of sci-fi and and science fiction, I love this film being that beautiful, sweet spot of the two and, and giving you that kind of realism take on the unknown of the science fanciful, if you will. And it's a film that I don't know has any, you know, little baby versions of it. I feel like it's really one of a kind. In its sense. And uh, it really has paved the way for a lot of new people out there in the film industry. <clears throat> Monkey Paw, <clears throat> nope. So if you haven't seen that and you're looking for something contemporary that kind of scratches a similar itch, but maybe not the same, go out there and explore a lot of what Monkey Paw is doing as well. I feel like they are a great studio. Jordan Peele himself is really just as passionate. Every time I hear Spielberg, and learn more about Peel's inspirations. I see the lines and the connections and 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 I get it. Spielberg is someone who's so passionate behind his projects and has such a great lens on the themes and the stories that he wants to tell. And they always kind of come from a very wholesome place, deep-rooted, that's very personal. And I think I think that's what resonates with me is that that personal connection and that kind of everyman lens that this film has to offer. It's a movie I watch annually if not more than that, a year. So I am already thinking about watching it again, Jack.
1: (laughs) Is that bad? No, it's not. I think that that is one of the joys of doing this podcast is that for the most part, when BK and I select something, we're rewatching something that we have seen before and that we either want to share that watch experience with each other again, or we want to expose the other host to for the first time. And I think there's a beauty to the rewatch. I think that when you have those films that resonate with you, that's really important to revisit that art and to keep that content fresh in your soul. When you don't watch a film that you love for too long, you start losing those parts to yourself. So if there's anything, because this has been a hell of a way to cap off the season, if there's anything I can impart to our listeners as we go on a brief little hiatus here, it's that don't be ashamed of going back and watching the movies that you love again embrace that process even if it's just you doing it if you're just bored for a couple hours and you've got a favorite that you've seen 90 billion times and you want to see it 90 billion and one times do it because it is an increase to the soul and it reminds you of who you are and it reminds you of who you connect with and what you connect with
0: so eloquently said, Jack. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you let me gush a bit about this film and spreading the legs about the future films. And I guess I'm saying that to give people like homework assignments while we kind of, you know, have to bring an end to our second amazing season here on the podcast. Ah. Oh. I can't believe it.
1: We actually got there and we're not going to be disappearing entirely until season three. I should put that out there because we have a couple ideas ruminating around for a special or two. We're just going to we're just going to slow it down for a few months because Lord knows we've been putting in the work.
0: Oh, big time. And you know, your girl is hella busy on top of all of the amazing hard work that Jack puts into every single one of these episodes. Just mind you, Jack be editing. I just don't think anyone knows that. All right, I just want everybody to know that my co-host is also a phenomenal editor. If anyone's out there looking for some audio editors, I'll let you know. Holla at you, girl.
1: <laughs> Shameless plug. Took us all of two seasons to try and find me work. That's good progress.
0: Oh, my goodness. But I'm serious. I wanted to give a little love. We always like shouting out BTS behind here when we talk about films. So why not shine a light behind all of the awesome BTS work that goes into this between the research that we both put in, but also the amazing editing and cutting work that you do to the podcast. You make it such a great experience for everyone. So kind of give a little love as we take our end of this season. But to your point, Jack, it is not the last of us. We'll be coming out with some cool things in the meantime of a tweet time, as well as some rogue screenings here and there. So if you want to get your movie fix while we're planning the next season, you can always find us on Twitter at RFN underscore podcast and on Instagram at Revenge of the Film Nerds, we do all of our details very active on Twitter. You can expect information on further watch parties and season three goodies and specials in between there if you follow us. Uh, but unfortunately, I think, Jack, our time is coming to an end.
1: Like Danny Ocean says at the end of Ocean's 13, I'll see you when I see you.
0: See you real soon. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone, for hanging out with us. And listening to all these amazing episodes of fantastic films that we've been honored to share with you. And we cannot wait to brighten your eyes and expose you to more amazing films that you've probably seen or maybe you've never heard of. Yes. (laughs) Until next time, go ahead, Jack. Let's get us out of here. I think I do it a little too often. Let's have you do it this time. I was, gonna say, I was
1: just going to say, yes, it's all jokes aside, it is an absolute thrill to do this podcast and to bring you guys these perspectives and this history and just films that we love on a regular basis. So it is with great sadness and melancholy, but also great happiness and pride that I get to close out season two and thank all of you for joining us here. We will see you very, very soon. But until then, please take care.
0: See you around.